got three scriptures tonight, starting in Genesis 18, verses 1 through 5. And the Lord appeared to him by the oaks of Mamre, as he sat at the door of his tent in the heat of the day. He lifted up his eyes and looked, and behold, three men were standing in front of him. When he saw them, he ran from the tent door to meet them and bowed himself to the earth and said, O Lord, if I have found favor in your sight, do not pass by your servant. Let a little water be brought and wash your feet and rest yourselves under the tree while I bring a morsel of bread that you may refresh yourselves, and after that you may pass on, since you have come to your servant. So they said, Do as you have said. Luke 14, verses 12 through 14. He said also to the man who had invited him, When you give a dinner or a banquet, Do not invite your friends or your brothers or your relatives or rich neighbors, lest they also invite you in return and you be repaid. But when you give a feast, invite the poor, the crippled, the lame, the blind, and you will be blessed because they cannot repay you. You will be repaid at the resurrection of the just. Finally, Hebrews Chapter 13, second verse. Do not neglect to show hospitality to strangers, for thereby some have entertained angels unawares. This is the word of the Lord. Well, 2005, there was an odd TV show on in uh, Britain called The Monastery. Let me show you an opening clip from it. The monastery that I attend, Christ in the Desert, they did another show, uh, same thing, except where I couldn't find it. I think somebody might have died or something and they put it off the air or something like that. But it was the same idea. They took a bunch of guys out to a monastery and uh, saw what happened. Um, Now, it's not a trendy idea that a producer came up with because this belief that coming and living within a community of God's people for an extended period of time can change you and introduce you to God uh, goes way back to, to the Bible. How about that? So this Lent, we're looking at four monastic practices that can help us grow spiritually. Uh, we looked at fixed hour prayer the first week. I don't know if we've got that slide, Bruce. Um, Last week we looked at spiritual friendship, and then tonight we'll look at this idea of hospitality, which is really what that little show is about. The rule of St. Benedict says, all guests who present themselves are to be welcomed as Christ. For he himself will say, I was a stranger, and you welcomed me. That's the verse we just read. Proper honor must be shown to all, especially to those who share our faith, and to pilgrims. Great care and concern are to be shown in receiving poor people and pilgrims because in them, more particularly, Christ is received. The Greek word for hospitality is lover of strangers. 
And uh, this is one of the most important themes in all of Scripture. It's, it's one of the things that's supposed to mark the people of God uh, more than anything, almost anything else, that we are a people who love uh, strangers. Now, there are a couple of Old Testament stories that describe what it means to care for strangers. And uh, we, we read one already, Genesis 18. Three visitors come to Abraham in the middle of the day. Abraham welcomes them in. He gives them food. He gives them rest. They make a promise to him that he and Sarah will conceive a child. And somewhere in the middle of that, he figures out that the strangers are actually the angel of God. Then in 1 Kings uh, 4, a wealthy Shunammite woman, that was a, a little city, notices that this prophet of God comes along every a couple times a year to do his ministry, and she, she builds a room on the back of the house. And he just stays there, he rests, she cares for him, and then her son dies in a farming accident, and uh, Elijah uh, raises him from the dead. And then 1 Kings 17, the prophet Elijah asks the widow of Zarephath for food and water. And she says, I don't have anything, Lord. And, and he says, you know, go ahead and the Lord will provide. The lady gives him food and water and then for the next several months has an abundance of supply. Her son also dies. The prophet raises him from the dead. And so there's some wonderful themes that you see in these Old Testament stories Christ is present in our hospitality. We love others well through hospitality. And we are blessed when we practice hospitality. Now there's several other stories that talk about uh, how grievous it is to not welcome the stranger. Uh, probably the most famous is Genesis 19. Sodom, you know, they, they had a couple things they were doing wrong. But one of them was... They were not welcoming the stranger, and God destroys them, in part because of their lack of hospitality. Now, the New Testament builds on the Old Testament's teachings, and Jesus expands and deepens them. Now, one of the things that happens in the New Testament is you start to see how Christian hospitality differs from the hospitality of the ancient world. The ancient world was very hospitable, but it worked in a very different way. Here's how it worked. It was called uh, uh, the law of reciprocity. And the idea was that you would have a, a patron and a recipient, and the patron would give, the recipient would receive, but then the recipient would honor you, and you would experience status and fame because of your generosity. So the reason why you, you gave was uh, status. It was a way to secure your status. And there was a distinct expectation on the person receiving to pay you back, either with money or with, with uh, praise and honor. And you can, you can see how different this is in, uh, in uh, the Odyssey, because Odysseus is uh, you know, on his big, big trip back home, and he's a great, great king, and he looks like a great king, and so he'll come into this village, and the king of the village will say, oh, this man looks like a king. Let's give him all sorts of hospitality so that when he goes home, his kingdom will know how great our kingdom was. And then later in the story, Odysseus, some god, I get all the gods mixed up, <laughs> but he's changed into a beggar, a poor old beggar, and now no one will give him the time of day. They actually try to beat him up. 
Now keep that in mind. That, that's how Greeks thought about hospitality. Keep that in mind and contrast it to what we see in the New Testament. We just read, but I want to read it again. This is a little teaching about dinner guest lists. Okay? And, and, and because the guest list of a dinner in a Palestinian village was very important because you, you wanted to invite the most powerful people for two reasons. One, if they said yes, it showed you were in the elite circle. The other reason was they might ask you back. So it was a way to, to keep your status. And you did, it was kind of like, I was going to say rushing a fraternity. Let's not go there. Let's not go. It was, it was kind of like, uh, yeah, it actually was kind of like rushing a fraternity. You, you wanted certain people around you, and there were other people that you did not want around you. And so you managed the guest list very carefully. Well, here Jesus says, when you give a dinner or a banquet, don't invite your friends or your brothers or your relatives or your rich neighbors. They might invite you in return and you'll be repaid. When you give a feast, invite the poor, the crippled, the lame, the blind. You'll be blessed because they can't pay you a thing. <laughs> this was entirely countercultural in that world, that, that you were supposed to welcome people that couldn't pay you back, people that maybe you didn't even want to be with. And then Jesus takes that in the, the teaching, the story about the great judgment, which um, you're probably familiar with. The Son of Man will separate the nations as a shepherd separates separate sheep and goats. And to the sheep on the right, the king says, this is in Matthew 25, Come, O blessed of my Father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of my world. For I was hungry, and you gave me food. I was thirsty, and you gave me drink. I was a stranger, and you welcomed me. Then the righteous will answer, Lord, when did we see you hungry and feed you, or thirsty and give you a drink? And when do we see you a stranger and welcome you? And the king will answer them, Truly I say to you, as you did it to one of the least of these, you did it to me. And so as Reba so beautifully said, there's introduced into, this, into the idea of hospitality that you actually are somehow encountering Christ in the person that you're serving. So, so there is a divine encounter that goes on when you open your heart to someone else, particularly the stranger. So not surprising, the, the letters in the New Testament to the churches reinforce this, Romans 12, 13, seek to show hospitality. We just read Hebrews 13, 2, 1 Peter 4, 9, show hospitality without grumbling. Now, the monastic tradition uh, takes these uh, ideas, these scriptural beliefs, and and, and, and weaves into them a very important idea, and it's this. That if you welcome a guest into your community, and they live there with you, and they begin to spend time with you, and, 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 and listen to the teachings of the community, and worship with the community, and serve with the community, that eventually they will run into the Christ of the community. Now, the Celtic monasteries, the monasteries in Ireland after St. Patrick evangelized the island, really built on this. Celtic monasteries were different than Eastern monasteries. And when I say Eastern, I mean like Egypt and, and North Africa. In, in the East, monks left the city to go save their souls in the desert. In Ireland, monks went back to the city 
and built monasteries to save the souls of the people in the city. And one of the ways that the gospel spread in Ireland was they created these monasteries and then they invited their neighbors to come live with them. And so imagine for a moment that you are a, uh, uh, an abused uh, child in an Irish village and, and, and you've heard about this monastery and it's like this refuge of free from violence and, and uh, 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 men following God. And so you run away from the guy that's abusing you and you go to the front gate. What are you going to find? Well, the first thing that you're going to find is, is what they called a porter. And it was usually an older person who, whose whole job was to greet you and introduce you to the others. And then the next thing would happen is that you'd meet the abbot. And the abbot would start to inquire about your visit, try to discern your spiritual needs. The abbot would wash your feet. And then he would invite you to sit at his table for meals. And then you'd be given a soul friend, a special spiritual uh, director, guide, discipler. You'd be put in a small group, and you'd be taught to pray. You'd be invited into the worship of the community. You'd be given scripture to read. People would drop by as you're peeling potatoes or whatever, you know, making beer. I don't know what Irish monks do. And they would say, what do you think about what you're reading? And this would go on month after month. And as the days went by, this is how most of Ireland was saved. And I think it's a very interesting way to think about evangelism. As we invite our friends and neighbors into our community just to live with us. And you come in wherever you are, believing whatever you believe, at whatever place you are in your spiritual journey. We just say, come on in, just live with us as we walk through the circle of the Christian year together. And as weeks go by and months go by and friendships are made and scriptures preached and small groups are had and confessions are made, eventually you come to know the Lord. I think there's two reasons why that's, that's really a, a, a good way of doing evangelism. Not the only way, but a good way. One of it is it's very communal. It's something we all do together. There's a hundred conversations that uh, go into talking to the person on the journey. The other reason is I, I think this kind of evangelism works really well in a post-Christian mission field where many people don't know the gospel story at all. Uh, when I moved here 29 years ago, every, uh, twice a year, signs would go up saying, Fall Revival, Spring Revival. Some of you remember that. And uh, it was just assumed that everybody in town knew what a revival was. Uh, that twice a year was supposed to be revived. And, and that you knew you know, the God of creation, that you knew something about sin, you knew something about the Savior, you knew something about the cross and the Holy Spirit and the church, and you just needed to be reawakened to that. Well... That's no longer true, uh, especially in urban context. The, the, the gospel is a very odd story. It's a strange story. It takes time to tell and to learn. So I think evangelism in a post-Christian context is a very slow process. As opposed to five minutes on a plane with a, with a tract, that can work, but only if the person has been prepared for years with an awareness of, 
God, sin, Christ, cross, forgiveness, repentance. If they're not aware of that, you can't just whip out a track and do the deal in five minutes. It takes a long time in the, in the community. Um, when I was, a, was younger, there was a guy at all the sporting events with a rainbow-colored afro. Some of you remember this. And he would hold up a sign that said, John 3.16. I don't know how the guy got tickets. I was always jealous because he'd be at the Super Bowl and the Masters and the World Series right behind the camera. And you'd see this knucklehead there with an afro and John 3.16. And his assumption was, if America sees John 3.16, they will know exactly what it's talking about. And the fact that God loved his son enough to send the world to the world to save us and die for our sins and that we need to believe in that, that everybody would understand all that language and people would come to Christ. And it might have been true then. It's not true now. So it, it takes a while for people to understand the gospel. Um, I like what somebody said. He says, the church doesn't have an evangelistic strategy. The church is an evangelistic strategy. Well, when, when we began the church downtown, um, I was told to fear a man named Robert Lost. <laughs> and uh, Robert was a brilliant mutual f- fund manager, lived over where the Alcorns live now, and uh, loved downtown and was a very devout atheist. And uh, one day I got a phone call about a year after we were in here, and Robert said uh, he wanted to talk. And so we set up an appointment, and I remember being very nervous about that appointment, thinking that Robert was going to bring all his guns and you know, kind of go after me. Well, he sits down, office upstairs, and becomes very emotional. I wait for a moment, and then he tells me this story. He tells me that he was sitting in his room in the condos over there next to the Sunlight Building, reading a science fiction novel, and he pulls out the novel, he points to a certain line, and he says, I realize God exists. And he starts to weep. And then he says, is this a monastery? I said, in some ways. And then he says, would you teach me how to know God? So for about a year, we we met every week. We studied scripture. He became a follower of Christ. He joined our church, and then eventually he he went up the hill and joined uh, the Catholic Church. He felt that was his spiritual home. And then on his first Ash Wednesday, he had a massive heart attack and and died. But I've always thought about Robert asking, is this a monastery, and will you show me how to know God? I think that's part of what's trying to go on here. Now, let's think a moment about hospitality as it relates to social justice and reconciliation. Those are such big, complex, politicized words. It's easy to be overwhelmed uh, by it. But one place to start is just by practicing hospitality. I mean, if you want to do one thing to, to move towards reconciliation, social justice, and all this stuff, practice hospitality to someone around you. Henry Nouwen, the, the great writer who's written more things on hospitality than anything I've ever read. He's just brilliant. He's, he's home now. But In a book called Gracias, he says, that more and more, the desire grows in me to simply walk around, greet people, enter their homes, sit in their doorsteps, play ball, and be known as someone who wants to live with them. It's a privilege to have the time and the freedom to practice this simple ministry of presence. Still, it's not as simple as it seems. 
My own desire is to be useful, to do something significant, or to be part of some impressive project. My desire for this is so strong that soon my time is taken up by meetings, conferences, study groups, workshops. This prevents me from walking the streets. It is so difficult to not have plans, to not organize people around the urgent cause, to not feel that you're working directly for social or spiritual progress. But I wonder more and more if the first thing shouldn't be to know people by name, to eat and drink with them, to listen to their stories, to tell your own, to let them know with words, handshakes, and hugs that you don't simply just like them, but you truly love them. Hmm. I love that. and You know, obviously... That works great if you're a priest. And I understand it's a little different context. It works great in Park Ridge with a fatherless boy who needs to throw the ball. But it can work in a dorm. It can work in an apartment building. It can work in in a subdivision. There are broken, vulnerable people around us. And some of them make seven figures, okay? Rich people are some of the most lonely, broken people in the world. Who knows? Maybe they need a little hospitality, too. Well, lastly, let's, let's think for a moment in terms of hospitality and caring for one another as a community of spiritual friends. Uh, Galatians 6.10, Let us do good to everyone and especially to those who are of the household of faith. What does that look like? Well, Suzanne Hassel has helped me a lot with this sermon, and she put together a helpful illustration, if we can uh, bring it up there contrasting entertaining with hospitality. They're not the same. Um, In entertaining, focus on decorating, menus, spotless rooms. Hospitality is a lifestyle. Entertaining focuses on things. Hospitality focuses on people. Entertaining traditionally has been a woman's role. Hospitality, it's a family's role. Entertaining creates pride, bondage, perfectionism, Uh, This is mine attitude. Hospitality, this is God's. The result on an entertaining model is it builds barriers. You can't meet expectations. Hospitality, you build bridges, friends. In entertaining, our model is magazines and others. Hospitality, the model is God's word. In entertaining, the source is duty and obligation. Oh, man, they had us over. Darn, got to have them over. Um... You never think that. Come on, Sandy Greek. Come on. Uh, Hospitality is more from the heart. So it has something to do with creating a safe place where God can work in a person's life. And before we just rush over this, oh, I get get this. I do a great sirloin. This is not that, okay? That may be part of it, but you know what I'm talking about, right? There are some people where you walk into their home, whether it's sirloin or or soup, and you just feel Jesus. You just feel safe and accepted and loved. And you you feel like God can start to do something in your life. Suzanne wrote this. She said, reflect for a moment on what it feels like to be welcomed. The word means simply, come and be well in my presence. When I am welcomed, I can be myself. I relax and feel unselfconscious, energized, happy. On the other hand, when I'm not welcomed, I doubt myself. I turn inward. I shrivel up. I feel excluded, not accepted, not acceptable. 
Hospitality is providing a place where we invite others in and let them simply sit with their pain. And we gently say, come sit, you're not alone. I'll make you a plate. Mm. There's this wonderful story in John's Gospel where he's the host. He feeds 5,000. And then he has this wonderful teaching where, where he says, that when you eat the bread and drink the wine, you're eating him and drinking him. That, that, that there's a way when you're, when you're opening your heart and your home to someone else, you're opening them to the Christ in you. And then, of course, the great story in the end of the Gospel of Luke where the disciples are on the Emmaus Road and they don't know who it is, and then they sit down and they have dinner and their eyes are opened, and the church has always seen in that the beauty of hospitality, that there is a way in which our eyes are open to Christ at the table that does not occur in other places. Uh, Henry Nouwen uh, says that the Dutch word for hospitality means freedom for the guest. And, and so the idea is, can we create emotional and spiritual and sacred spaces in our lives and in our homes where, where you, you, you experience the freedom you have in Christ, where the space opens up a place for you to move towards Christ. So you might, we might just ask ourselves, what's your table like? Patrick King, when he was a pastor here, always asked this at pilgrimage. He said, describe your what table was like in your family? Because you learn a lot about somebody by knowing what their table's like. What, what, what's your table like? You know, is it a place where people have to kind of always be on guard and parrying and thrusting and fighting to get a word in and defending your position? And uh, is, it, is it just like a fueling station where you shove something in your mouth while you check your phone and figure out what you're going to watch on TV? Or is it a, a space, a safe spiritual space where Christ is present and you experience God's freedom and wonderful things happen uh, around that table? I know it is for a lot of you because I've seen it over the years. Well, many years ago in a in a, in a low point in my spiritual journey, I took a retreat to Gethsemane. And it always amazes me how I can be somewhere many times and still get lost. And uh, there is a shortcut from Lexington to the monastery that uh, if you go, I would not recommend taking because it goes through all sorts of farms. And, and I got to know them all that night. Um, and so when I got there, uh, I got there after the monks went to bed. And I was faced with a dilemma. The spiritual thing would have been to sleep in my car, repent, wake up in the morning, and start over. But instead, I rang the bell, and um, Brother Andre, this old monk from France, uh, kind of shuffled downstairs to me and uh, just smiled. I'll never forget that smile. He's probably passed now, but and he got the key, and I said, I'm, I'm so sorry for waking you up. And he smiled at me, and he said, um, it's okay. You're here. Let's pray.